we have is learning not to settle into what's familiar. Learning not to settle into what's comfortable for us. To, to move past traditions. To move past biases that we have. And we need to learn to do that to grow as a person. But we also need to learn that to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. If I'm going to have the mind of Christ, I can't have my mind, right? If I'm going to have the love of Christ, I can't operate like I always do because I'm not the world's most loving person. I need a power from the Holy Spirit to love like Jesus loves and to be merciful like Jesus is and to live holy like Jesus did because that's not in me. I'm transformed, you're transformed, but, but we need the Holy Spirit to help us. Now, even the disciples struggled with this. For three years, they walked with Jesus. They heard every word of teaching that he said. They watched every miracle. They were part of every miracle. And yet, at the end, when he's celebrating the table, when he's saying, this is my body which is given for you, I'm about to go to the cross, they're still thinking about themselves. They're still full of who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And and that is a, a certain way of thinking that falls back to us as humans that, that we are inclined to. Remember, they were the ones who pushed the kids away and said, don't bother Jesus, he's busy right now. Or said, Lord, send the crowds away. We don't have the ability to feed them. And frankly, we're pretty tired. And if, just send the crowds away. They were always kind of, kind of pushing to what was important to them. But then after the Holy Spirit indwells them, empowers them, what happens? The focus is off of self and on the gospel. It's on the Lord. It's on walking by the Spirit. And that's where we need to be. So much of the battle that we are facing this morning, in fact, I would say almost all of it is in our minds. How we think, what's important to us, what preoccupies our mind, how we respond when temptation comes along, how much we give in to selfishness and pride, how we define success, what our prejudices are, what our judgmentalism is, how confident we are versus how fearful we are. Our our mind is constantly under attack and being challenged to change. And if we're not completely surrendered to the Lord, if we're not sanctified by his holiness, then we're not only going to be susceptible to falling back spiritually, but we are also going to be at risk, listen now, of opposing the leading and work of the Lord. If we're not surrendered, if we're not sanctified, if we're still living in the old self of mind rather than the renewal of our mind, then we are going to have difficulty spiritually and personally, and we are going to set ourselves in in a very subtle but important way of opposing the work and leading of the Lord. Now, we see this all throughout Scripture, Adam and Eve, Lot, Saul, the Israelites, it's all throughout Scripture. One of the clearest examples, look at your text, is here in Acts chapter 11. Now this text occurs right as the church is booming and growing. People are trusting Christ, which is the ideal form of church growth, right? When people are getting saved. It's increasing influence, but there's a source of stress for some people because they may be excited about people getting saved, but they're not excited about who's getting saved. It's great that the church is growing, but they would prefer that the church grows only with Jewish believers. And they were frustrated and angry and hostile 
that the Gentiles were now being grafted into the vine, that, that they were being accepted, that the gospel was going to them, and they create such a problem that they say, all right, we'll accept the Gentiles, but here's what has to happen. They have to follow all the tenets of the law. They have to be circumcised. They have to do everything that we've had to do, kind of as a, a form of reparation. Like, you have to prove yourself as worthy. So if you're going to be part of our club, this is how they're thinking, you're going to be part of our club, then you have to follow our rules. And the issue became so volatile that a couple chapters later in Acts 15, Paul actually has to confront many of the disciples who weren't strong in their backbone and kind of said, well, okay, let's make peace. We'll, we'll plas- uh, uh, placate the Jews and, and let them kind of set these rules. And the Gentiles, you know, they should probably prove themselves. And Paul gets right up in Peter's face and says, nope, this is wrong. This is not how it works. And he writes the book of Galatians to dis count that and to say we are not going to place on the gentiles what we've had to follow as jews because jesus fulfilled the law the law is done now let's read what happens here in Acts chapter 11 verses 1 to 3 the apostles and the brethren who were throughout judea heard that the gentiles also had received the word of god and when peter came to jerusalem those who were circumcised took issue with him saying you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them all right let's get the setting verse 1 we see that luke identifies these people in jerusalem as apostles and brethren but he also says in luke 2 those who are circumcised so this is kind of his nice way of saying these are jews who still held held to the law and expected everybody else to hold to the law despite jesus even the gentiles now we know circumcision was the evidence of alignment with the abrahamic covenant And to their credit, okay, these Jews showed great obedience to the law. In fact, Peter himself mentions that uh, later on, we'll read it, he says, I have not eaten anything that's unclean. I've adhered to the law too. But here was the problem. And we see this especially with the Pharisees and the scribes. They adhered to the law, they obeyed the law, but it was ritualistic. There was no heart. There was nothing that, that was sensitive to the Lord. It was just, all right, I'm going to do my chores. I'm going to say this prayer. I'm going to wear this thing. I'm going to eat this thing. I'm going to do this, do this, do this. I'm going to study the Bible. I'm not going to study it with a heart. I'm just going to study it to memorize it so I know it, so I can walk around and say that I know the Bible. That's not how God's called us to be, right? So they were obeying to their credit, but they weren't sensitive to the Lord. That's why when you look back at the text in verse 2, it says they took issue with Peter. Peter had gone, chapter 10, he had gone to the house of Cornelius, and he had seen a vision there. We'll explain that in a couple minutes. And he had had dinner with them. Now, the problem was they came back and said, you ate with Gentiles. You're not allowed to do that. And they took issue. The word literally means to oppose and contend with a hostile spirit. So they're ticked. You never should have initiated any contact with these Gentiles. And you certainly should not have had fellowship with them. That's two strikes in our book. Peter, you're wrong. You're wrong. And we're hostile about it. We think you have lost credibility as a disciple because you went to the Gentiles. Now this cut right to their pride. Because they were God's chosen people. And as people who adhered to the law, they did not want to accept that the Lord was doing a fresh work. 
It was only what they wanted. Now, there's absolutely no question, there's zero doubt at this point what the Lord was doing. In fact, if you go prior to chapter 11, and we studied through Acts, so hopefully we've, we've studied this enough as believers, but prior to, to chapter 11, there are seven distinct acts that proved exactly what the Lord was doing. You go all the way back to Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, at the start of Jesus' ministry, he said... Here's why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. In other words, that, that was everything to a Jew. They were always trying to fulfill the law. He says, I'm going to put an end to it. I'm going to fulfill it so that we won't have to deal with that anymore because I'm going to introduce a new covenant. We just celebrated it. A new covenant in my blood. So we're not going to adhere to the law, the rigid standards of the law, because none of you can follow it. That was the whole point of the Old Testament. So all the way back in Matthew 5, Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do. Then we have his resurrection and his ascension that proved the Pharisees as frauds. It proved that he was who he said he was, that he had made a, a completed sacrifice for sin. Then he gives them the great commission in Matthew 28, go into all the nations and preach the gospel and make disciples. Obviously, that included the Gentiles. Then he says at Pentecost, you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit comes. The disciples speak in foreign languages. Everybody who's there from all the nations of the earth celebrating Pentecost hears the gospel. They get saved 3,000 in one day. They go back to their countries and they start to spread the good news about Christ. And from there, the gospel spreads all over the place. Italy, Greece, Asia Minor, Syria, it just keeps spreading and spreading. So God wasn't just saying, it's only the Jews, it's only the Jews, it's only the Jews. And then, to confirm it even more, in chapter 9, he calls Paul. He says, you're going to be the minister to the Gentiles. You're going to go. And the transformative experience and conversion that Paul has starts the whole process. So, so it's not like this was uh, uh, hidden. It's not like even the most rigid Jews didn't understand what was going on. And yet they were trying to hinder the work of the Lord because they were self-righteous and they were judgmental. Now, I want to give you three spiritual principles this morning that, that will help us, I pray, how to deal with change. Because there are many times we face things in our lives that require a change of thinking or a change of action. And especially as this relates to the work and leading of the Lord, we need to be people that are ready, willing, eager, passionate, and excited to embrace that change rather than saying, well, that's not comfortable for me. I don't like that. I don't want to do that. Yeah, but it's a work of the Lord. Well, well I don't really want to do that. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write at the top of the page, when there is clear evidence of what the Lord is doing, okay, dot, dot, dot. When, when there's clear evidence of what the Lord is doing, and then I'm going to give you three spiritual principles. I will tell you that, Lord willing, next week or even over the next two weeks, we're going to study eight ways to recognize um, and know when the Spirit is leading you, okay? So we're going to talk about how do we discern uh, when, when God is moving, when the Spirit's teaching, other than His Word, obviously, but, but what are some of the ways we can figure that out? Because we're not always going to get a clear word from heaven like Peter does, right? But, but for now, let's understand when the Lord is leading, when it's obvious what He's doing, here's what we need to do, okay? Number one, 
when there's clear evidence of what the Lord is doing, praise the Lord for it, even when it's uncomfortable for you. Praise the Lord for it, even when it's uncomfortable for you. Now, this was a, a fundamental change in thinking for the Jews. And not only did they not receive it as a work of the Lord, they actually refused to accept the Gentiles. And in the process, they questioned Peter's integrity. The one who Jesus said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. But they didn't want that. They didn't like that. And their, their, their hostile resistance to even allow a meal with a Gentile showed how rigidly they were clinging to the law. By clinging to the law, if they understood Jesus at all, they were actually refusing to accept him as Messiah. Because by, by saying the old covenant, old covenant, old covenant, that's all we want, we're going to adhere to the law, and Jesus is fine, but it's old covenant, old covenant, old covenant. And he said, no, I've fulfilled it. There's a new covenant. This is after the resurrection. There's a new covenant in my blood. You need to understand this is accomplished. Now there's a new covenant of grace. But they didn't want that. They wanted the old covenant. What's ironic is that it wasn't like they had even obeyed the law at any time in their history. In fact, the Old Testament is replete with examples of their lack of obedience. There's no way we can read the Old Testament and go, well, Israel figured it out. They, they, they really got it. They obeyed the law. I don't know why Jesus even had to come because they did it so well. If anything, it's just the opposite, right? Rebellion, resentment, lack of trust, disobedience. Till finally God says, all right, enough already. You are divided and you're going to go into captivity. And you're going to stay into captivity until I send the Savior. So there's no, there's no um, honesty. This is disingenuous. Well, we have to follow the law. Well, you've never followed the law. What are you talking about? You've disobeyed it. But many Jews rejected Jesus and even accused him of breaking the law instead of praising God and saying, you've come to fulfill it. We're free from it. Now we're covered by your grace. Praise the Lord. Praise, the, praise you, Jesus. Instead of saying, praise Jesus, what did they say? Crucify him. Kill him. Get rid of him. He's a bother to us. You know, sometimes we refuse to accept what is obvious because we're proud. We just don't want to change. And that is especially dangerous when it comes to the Lord's work. When he's trying to mold us and shape us to be like Christ and trying to conform us to his will. You know, I, I've watched over the years. I've been a PK all my life. Been in church more times than I can count, more churches than I can count. And I have been so saddened over the years to see churches fractured because people don't want to change. The most painful and but sometimes necessary fracture comes when a group of people simply does not want to live like Christ. They don't want to love like Christ. And they try to dictate their way of thinking into the life and function of the church. I praise the Lord that we don't have that in our church right now. And I pray against it. Many churches have become comfortable with this happening because church growth is often more preeminent than Christ being preeminent. There's a greater passion to, to be known and to have people than there is for Jesus to be exalted. Francis Chan just written a new book. I just got it this weekend before it's even been released. 
I'm so excited. I think it's going to be our next book of the month, maybe. But listen to how he describes this dangerous precedent. I, I wish I could articulate things this clearly as he does. This is kind of long, but listen carefully. Real love, unity, and blessing were supposed to be found in the church. Jesus said that the world would see the supernatural unity and love we share in the church and believe in him through that, but we're not experiencing it. We've given up on it. We no longer believe it's possible. What if we took God's description of the church as a family seriously? What would happen if a group of people sought Jesus fervently, loved each other sacrificially, and then shared the gospel boldly? Sadly, there are a lot of people in our churches who aren't interested in living out loving family like this. And I'm going to say something that might be hard to hear. What if we let them leave? I know that goes against all of the wisdom of modern church growth strategy, but it's exactly the kind of thing Jesus would do. While we design strategies to slowly ease people into Christian commitment and grow attendance at our services, Jesus called people to count the cost from the very start. He didn't expect his followers to be perfect, but he did demand that they be committed. The people who leave your church because they're turned off by the level of relational commitment will find another church that can provide what they're looking for. You can't shape the life of your church around those who might leave if things start to feel too much like the New Testament. Wow. I read that earlier this week and I thought, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And there are other things that fracture churches. Changes in style. Too much adaptation. Not enough adaptation. Fighting for control. Strong opinions. People getting their feelings stepped on. Not enough growth. Too much growth. And the classic, how many have heard this? It's not the way it used to be. I once pastored a little country church that had zero desire for outreach. And I mean zero. There was a huge highway that was being built two miles from our little church. We had a neighborhood of 300 homes go in across the street from our little property. We were the only church for five miles. And when I said to the church, we need to reach out to that community, they said, nope. The prevailing mentality was summed up one Sunday when Julie sat in a pew three rows from the front because she tried to move around and meet people every week. And the very unhappy, unpleasant wife of the man that had built the building told her to move because it was her pew. Now, we can't ever allow that passive hindering of ministry to take place. We can't ever allow our, our lack of desire to change and to follow the work of the Lord to, to, to stop us. So my question is, how do you and I personally react when what is familiar and what is comfortable starts to change? Because sometimes the Lord, often the Lord, is the one who causes it, which means I need to be willing to change the way I think. I need to be changed what I want. Now, some of those things include unbiblical theology. Maybe you were raised in a church that was, that was dead and never opened the Word of God and never, and never presented the Word of God in a way where you could understand it. Well, maybe you need to, to move past that because the Lord wants to freshen your knowledge and wants you to, to, to grow and study the Word of God. 
Maybe we need to change what we think it means to be a disciple of Christ. Not just a casual churchgoer who still lives like the world in some ways, but, but sold out, surrendered, sacrificial, passionate, sanctified, sharing the gospel. That's a true disciple. Not just, well, I go to church and I give and I work in the nursery once. That, that's wonderful. Praise you. Thank you for doing that. But that's not what it means to be a disciple. Maybe we need to, to lose, we definitely need to lose some of the isms, judgmentalism, criticism, racism, sexism, especially as it relates to our church and our ministry. This church should be multicultural, multi-generational, multi, uh, multi-economic, everything. I heard a pastor say once that 11 o'clock Sunday morning, which we used to have church, is the most segregated hour of the week. That should not be so. Men and women who love the Lord, who are seeking the Lord, together serving faithfully. We need to change what church should be in our mind and our bias and how we grew up. We need to, and this is a tough one, we need to maybe have some alterations on our opinion of worship music. Biggest area of disagreement in any church. Biggest area of division. You know what you like, you know what you lean to, I know what I lean to. But listen, if you want to know where we stand as a church on this, it is not about the type of music we do, it is about our philosophy. If you want to go on the website and look at the philosophy of worship, our philosophy of worship is we want it to be victorious and we want all praise to go to the Lord, period. No performance, no distractions, we just want to be some kind of vehicle so God gets the glory. That's it. That's all we need to do. Because worship is not about how I look and how I sing and, and whether there are lights shining and, and screens. No, that's, that's, that's Americanized church. Church is all praise to you, Lord. Whether we have a full band or no band, whether we have singers or no singers, whether we have lights or no lights, we're just going to come praise you. That's, that's worship. Maybe we need to change in terms of apathy about outreach. Because the Bible says to you and to me, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. Jerusalem, where you live, what's comfortable. Judea, your neighbors. Samaria, people that are kind of enemies who don't like you. And the uttermost parts of the earth, where it's unfamiliar and maybe even intimidating. Out of your comfort zone. But, but you need to go. May need to change in terms of our ministry responsibilities. Well, I'm tired. I'm retired now. I don't. No, we still need to serve. You're young. You still need to serve. You're middle-aged with kids. You still need to serve. Not because we need nursery workers, but because we're called to serve. God's given every one of us gifts. Are you using them? Are you using them well? One thing we want to do as leaders in this fall is get the right people in the right places. We don't want you serving in a place that's not in your gifting, but we do want you serving in a place that is your gifting. Because you'll be more passionate about that. As disciples, as a church, we want to be Acts 2.42. They got together daily and they broke bread and they prayed. We want to be Acts 4.13. And they knew that they had been with Jesus. We want to praise the Lord as he works in our midst, not fight him. So the first thing we need to do is when God creates change, we need to praise him. Second, quickly, when there's clear evidence of what the Lord is doing, recognize it and reject any personal bias. This is a hard one. When there's clear evidence of what the Lord's doing, recognize it and reject any personal bias. Now, they don't come right out and say it in verse 1 to 3. 
But the reasons they're rejecting Peter are obvious. They're stuck in an old way of thinking. They're not open to any kind of new reality. Didn't matter what Jesus had done. Didn't matter that he had introduced a new covenant. Didn't matter that thousands and thousands and thousands of people were going to save. that, That didn't matter. They were biased. They didn't want the Gentiles to be involved. They didn't want, maybe in a church, we don't want young people, or we don't want old people, or we don't want African American people, or we don't want people that are struggling with their sexuality. We don't want that. We don't want it. We just want to be us. That's not the way church works. So he says, what's the problem? Well, we don't, you, you went to the Gentiles. We don't want the Gentiles included. We want to follow the law. So their judgmental hearts are exposed. We're God's chosen. We're we're the ones who matter. You know, the Jews in the first century saw the Gentiles as morally deficient, lesser than, you're not as good as us. So when they are thinking about their exclusive little club, they say to Peter, how dare you? How dare you have dinner with Gentiles? And Peter says, let me tell you what's going on here. We're not going to read it because of time, but in verses 4 to 18, read them later. He says, let me tell you about a vision I had. I had a vision, and there was a cloth that dropped, and it was full of unclean animals. And you see it here in verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7. A voice said to heaven, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Peter says, listen, I'm certain of the Lord's work here. And I'm fully committed to it. There's no going back to my old life. I had this bias. Even when I saw that sheet and the voice from heaven said, kill and eat. I had my bias and I said, nope, I've never done that. I'm proud that I've never broken the law. In this matter, I've never eaten anything unclean. And yet he says, nope, that has to change. This is the word of God, and Peter explains it in great detail, in great order. You know, there's a great logic to the gospel. There's a great logic to God's word. What he says is reasonable and logical and wise and powerful. You never have to be ashamed of the word of God. You know what the, the culture is trying to do? Well, the Bible's stupid. It's outdated. You believe in those myths? Come on. Jesus came down? Listen, I don't see what the world's cranking out to be wise. Do you? Foolishness everywhere. We don't have to be ashamed of the word of God because it's clear and logical and rational and it leads to life. So don't ever be hesitant to say, well, the Bible says this. I remember Billy Graham when he preached. He'd always says that the Bible says and the Bible says and the Bible says. People go, what's the Bible? Tell me what's better. Tell me what leads to life. Because everything I see in culture leads to death. This is a book of life. The word of truth. Don't ever be ashamed of it. So Peter says, let me lay it out for you. Let me tell you what's happened. 
God's doing a new work, and I can't go back to my old life fishing for smelly fish in Galilee because he's made me a fisher of men. And now I'm preaching, and miracles are being done, and I want to tell you that's because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And you guys need to understand that there's a new agenda. There's a new way of thinking, and that may be radical to you. It was to me. In my old life, nobody told me what to do. And now I want to tell you, I'm so happy to be surrendered to the Lord. I'm so happy to be following his will. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And I am boldly ready to serve him in any way. So you're going to have to change your thinking. We have to be careful to reject any personal bias. Look at the third thought quickly. When there's clear evidence of what the Lord's doing, eagerly pursue it. Instead of resisting it. Eagerly pursue it. Peter says in verse 7. When I first heard that voice from heaven. Telling me to eat what was unclean. I did what any faithful Jew would do. I said no way. But I want you to notice that Peter is teachable. Not a quality we usually use for Peter. This is such. Teachability is such an important quality in life. It is so important to be taught things, to be open to something new, to let somebody else that knows more than you do teach you. Isn't it embarrassing when you say, well, I know what to do, and then you're proven wrong. You're like, yeah, well, but I kind of knew what to do. I hate that. I, I hate being proven wrong. Come on, who, who's with me on this one? I hate being proven wrong. I'm proud enough, I will tell you, I'm proud enough that I don't like being proven wrong. So, so when somebody comes along that knows more and says, well, this is what you're supposed to do, but, but, but I think I know what to do. That's how Peter was. Peter always had the first word, the last word, the middle word, the second word, the 14th word. Peter, Peter, Peter always had an argument. But now he says, listen, I've got to be teachable. And I objected, but then the voice spoke again. And it said, there's a powerful truth, Peter, to your faith and to our faith. And that is when the Lord has cleansed something. Listen now, it's no longer unholy. That's what this table's about. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson sign. Tell me the last line. He washed it white as snow. Whom God says is holy is holy. So when you receive Christ, you're cleansed. There's no more record of Paul Rhodes' sin. Why? I don't know. Because God loves me. But he looks at my slate. He doesn't see murderous thoughts and adulterous thoughts and lying and stealing and cheating. He doesn't see any of that anymore. It's all gone. And he just sees the blood of Jesus that washed me clean. Peter says, listen. God has done for the Gentiles what he did for us. And Jesus died for all. He says, look at it, verse 10. This happened three times. And then three men appeared who were sent. And the Spirit said, go with them without any misgivings. Three's not an accidental number. It's the number of completion and unity. So this points to Christ. And he says in verse 12, the Spirit said, go without hesitation. And the six guys who were with me affirmed that. And that mitigated against my arguments and my hesitation and my indignation. And then in verse 15, the Spirit says, I'm going to fall on these Gentiles. 
I'm going to indwell them the same way I indwelled you. And it says, oh, I love this. And I remembered, look at verse 16. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift that he gave to us after also believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, I love this sentence. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles all through repentance that leads to life. What a conclusion. He says, look, if the Lord confirmed it, who am I to say that's wrong? Just because of my bias? Just because of my background? Just because of my nationality? How dare I do that? You know, one of the great dangers of resisting change is that we may be resisting the Lord. So when God calls us to break habitual sin and to be sanctified, are you holding back? Well, well, that means that I'm going to have to give up what I like. Yes, it does. Yes, it means you're going to have to live differently. When he calls you to trust in him that's challenging and stretches your faith, are, are you responding with bold faith or kind of passive distrust? Well, I kind of wait it out and see what happens and maybe God will change his mind. Notice in verse 18, with this we're done, that once they knew the Lord was bringing change, what happens? They quiet down and, notice, they glorify God. In other words, it's not just begrudging acceptance. Okay, (sighs) we'll accept them. Can't believe we got to accept the Gentiles. Can you believe this guy? It says that they glorified and praised God. There's a new calling. Oh, praise the Lord. You mean the Gentiles get to receive Christ like we did? You mean they're going to be grafted into the vine? You mean to tell me that God's granted repentance to them as he did to us? Listen, when you know the Lord's leading, it's thrilling, even when change is required. So let me ask you, what change do you sense the Lord is initiating in your life? It may be uncomfortable, but it's necessary. Maybe it's personal and spiritual. I need to change my friends. I need to change my habits. I need to get away from people that are dragging me away from the Lord. I need to build some discipline into my life so I can walk into holiness. Lord, I need to embrace that. I need to, I need to yield to that. You're trying to create that change, and I've been fighting you. Maybe it's emotional you have biases, and you, you need to ask the Lord to convict you. Lord, change my thinking. I've, I've been a racist all my life, or I've, I've, I've had a poor opinion of women, or, 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 or whatever. I, I don't like that certain kind of music, and it bugs me. Anytime we go into church and we play that kind of music, it just grates at my soul. Well, Lord, you need to change that. Or maybe it's simply a change to be fully surrendered to the Lord. Maybe your spirit needs to be quieted down. The Bible says, cease striving. Stop fighting. Just yield yourself to the Lord. Just, just let him work. And as he does that, don't fold your arms and say, okay, I'll do it. Praise you, Lord. Pray, praise you for doing this work. You know, I need to change. It's the hardest thing in life, right? I need to change. I need, Lord, change me. Change me. Change my mind. Change my heart. I don't want to be like this anymore. Whatever it is for you, I pray that you'll be willing to change and that I'll be willing to change. 
and that we will find joy in the work of the Lord.